When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Cover Story, a podcast where we talk with people who write, edit, and publish long-form journalism. My name is Aga Popenda, and today we're talking with Ryan Ruby about his piece titled Child's Play, published this June in The Believer. Welcome, Ryan. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Aga. Thank you for uh, inviting me onto the podcast. Thank you. Please tell us a bit about yourself and your various evolving interests, because you do so many things. You do fiction, poetry and prose, nonfiction, literary and cinema uh, criticism and philosophy, translation from French. And at the top of that, uh, at the top of that, you live, work and teach in Berlin, Germany. That's a lot. How all that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, only hearing you say it now makes me recognize that that is indeed the case. I, it's hard for me to say whether, which one of these um, particular genres of writing uh, and modes of writing that I uh, identify with most, but I am the author of a novel, The Zero and the One, which was published in 2017. I've translated two books from the French by um, Roger Croix and Gregoire Boulier for a small and now defunct uh, Berlin publisher called Redux Books. Uh, I wrote a book-like poem, which is as yet unpublished, uh, called Context Collapse. Uh, and in the meanwhile, um, I have been making a living, especially in the past uh, year or so, when teaching and editing opportunities have not really been available as a, a, a freelance cr- uh, critic. Uh, and as you said, um, uh, we're here to discuss the, the piece that I recently put out for the believer, but um, uh, other recent work has appeared in Poetry Magazine, uh, the New Left Reviews blog Sidecar, um, and Book Forum, and there will be forthcoming work in some of those venues as well as uh, The Point. Uh, and when did you acquire French? Because uh, you live in Berlin, I, you know, uh, I would think that uh, uh, my first uh, impulse would be to think that you translate from German, but no, you translate from French. Is that something uh, that you acquired on the way? <laughs> ah, yeah, so my, my French was high school and college French, um, and I maintained a sort of reading knowledge of uh, French. And when I first arrived in Berlin, uh, I was just looking for work, uh, and I was trying to find... So one of the strange things about my situation uh, is that when I came to Berlin, the condition of the particular visa I'm on is that I had to declare a profession. Right. Um, and the profession that I chose to declare was... Uh, uh, this is, it's a Freiberufler uh, or freelance visa. And the profession I chose to declare was writing and so um, I'm legally um, or or was for five years legally obligated only to work in spheres related to uh, writing um, and so the 
the irony of my life is that the, the German state is the guarantor of my continued persistence uh, as a as a working writer. Uh, but the, to answer your question is I arrived in Berlin uh, and I was just looking for any job that I could get um, freelance teaching, editing. And one of the opportunities that I came across is um, I met uh, a person called Amanda DeMarco, who herself is a critic, a translator, excellent translator. Uh, and um, and she was publishing a small uh, small press at the time. And I asked her um, what I could do if I could do anything for her. Uh, and at the time I had, I had no German and I had to rely on my French and produce these two small novellas in, in translation, both of which were a sort of apprenticeship in the learning how to translate really. And I'm really grateful to Amanda for letting me learn how to do that on the fly as it were. Uh, okay. Uh, sounds great. Also, are you a, a magazine long form journalism a reader or solely a producer of such pieces? Oh, um, I think I think it's long form journalism is one of the most sort of exciting sort of everyday forms that is being produced right now. And I would say that, like most people um, who are working in this sort of industry, at least, um, uh, there's some great work uh, being uh, put out um, in in this format. Uh, so yeah, so I, I read it. I, I read. I, I honestly, I read so much of it that I that I'm hard pressed to think of any one particular uh, example we of. We to do that. Like for example, <laughs> yeah. you you so you you interviewed Matthew Carp, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, so his recent story in, in Harper's was 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 fantastic um, about. Um, about uh, American American history uh, and the 1619 project and the 70, 1776 project and the competing battles over American history in Harper's was, was uh, fantastic to to come up with an to come up with an example of up the top of my head of things that are currently that I've just read and are still in my my browser window the tabs are still open. Uh, and something that just came to my mind, uh, you are a good person to ask, uh, how does the American uh, long-form journalism compare uh, when, um, with, let's say, the French scene? Because it seems that you have uh, access to it, and the German scene. Uh, how are Americans doing with the long-form journalism? Oh, uh, that might actually be beyond my expertise uh, to say, um, uh, because I... Um, I think my, I, I yeah I would I would be hard I would actually be hard pressed to to make comparisons uh, to to either of those things except to say that in both France and Germany there's a sort of long feuilleton tradition um, that is culturally codified in a way that does not exist in uh, Anglo-American. Uh, publications, and so when we talk about long-form journalism, we're all we're also talking about um, the ways in which um, uh, prestige publications, but also uh, reader interest, uh, is reacting against the sort of total massive generation of of very uh, 
you know, what, what, what shall we call it? Short form journalism, cultural criticism, the, the sort of quick take. Uh, and so the, the thing about long form journalism in the, in the Anglo American tradition is that obviously there's a very long tradition of it, but as a sort of special feature, calling it long form at all gives it a sort of like, it's a, almost a primitive reaction to the sort of deluge of uh, small 800 word to let's say a thousand word takes that are just produced on a, on a regular basis. And that seems to be a sort of uh, going back to previous traditions of uh, American sort of belletristic writing, um, which uh, remains continuous uh, to, in, in France and Germany, where, or at least that's how it seems to me in a sort of a, from a very sort of superficial standpoint of observation. All right. Sorry for such an unfair question. No, no, no. <laughs> so uh, going back to the piece itself, Child's Play, uh, how it exactly came to being and how usually your pieces of that sort uh, come to being kind of, um, do you uh, do you produce a, a piece and then you're looking for a publisher? Do you respond to a request? How long does it take you? Where do you take your ideas from? Yeah, however you want to approach it. Sure. Uh, the vast majority of my work as a critic is generated by me going through the uh, sort of pitch routine. So just uh, article idea, pitching it to various editors, and then trying to get buy-in from uh, various editors, various different publications. And so in this respect, uh, Child's Play was unique because the editor in question, uh, James Ye at The Believer, uh, found me to do the article. So James and I know each other from uh, from New York, and he had been working on uh, the word book, Wittgenstein's word book, uh, mm-hmm. in an editorial capacity. Uh, and he was looking uh, for someone to, to write something about it. And he was in touch with a mutual friend who then uh, told him that I, w- that I, in fact, was the right person for the job. And... Um, I think actually this is the first time uh, an editor has ever uh, reached out to me to be like, will you, will you write something about this and uh, to do an actual commission of, uh, of the piece. So uh, naturally I took it. Of course, uh, I, I have a long history with uh, Wittgenstein going back to when I was a teenager. So I was sort of delighted to write about this uh, book which is the uh, Worte book for Volksschulen, or the word book for elementary schools, mm-hmm. um, which is a very, very strange. I, I never imagined in, uh, in all of my years of thinking about Wittgenstein that the first piece that I would publish about him was about this very, very strange book uh, that exists in yeah. his uh, career. Okay. So why are you... I have a couple of larger questions about philosophy, but... Uh, why, like, why would uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein? Uh, why were you fascinated by him already as a teenager? Yeah, so I, uh, I'll tell the story. I actually I wrote um, the the process. Uh, just to go back quickly to another part of your previous question yes. is the the, the, proce- the process of writing this article. Um, this so James reached out to me in in June, and it only appeared about a year later. So this was a sort of interesting project, also in the in this respect that it it sort of took about a year to come out uh, and that had sort of interesting consequences 
for the for the actual way it appeared uh, in um, in uh, in in its final print form. But uh, one of the things that was in an earlier draft was the story of how I came to find out uh, about Wittgenstein. It's sort of an embarrassing story for me, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway here uh, because it's. Uh, I think it's a very interesting parable of, of what it's like to be a young person excited about ideas, which was that um, back in 1999, Time Magazine ran a series of special editions um, about um, sort of wrap-ups of the 20th century. And at the time, I, I think my father was a subscriber to Time Magazine, and I regarded Time Magazine as a uh, being a 16-year-old, uh, a sort of, you know, authoritative cultural um, cultural organ of journalism. And I really sort of look forward to these special editions, which are about literature, music, the, um, science, politics, and so on and so forth. And uh, when the one, when the special edition came out about sort of thinkers and intellectuals, uh, I I went immediately to the philosopher section and I was expecting to see, you know, like who's the best philosopher of the 20th century. And as a 16 year old, of course, I knew that the answer to that question is Champoltat. Um, and then I turned to the page in which Time Magazine had uh, a feature about someone else entirely, this Ludwig Wittgenstein guy, uh, or as I probably would have called him Wittgenstein uh, at the time. Uh, and I, I looked and I, I thought to myself, God, I have never heard of this person. He can't be that good. Oh. He can't be that good. Uh, but, but of course, um, this is very classic, a classic thing for a 16-year-old to do. But of course, I think I, I must have clearly had a bad conscience about that because I, 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 I have my copy of the, the Tractatus and it's dated to April of that year. So I must have immediately gone out and, and bought a copy of the, uh, Tractatus Logical Philosophicus, which is, of course, is Wittgenstein's famous first book. And I, I, I distinctly remember opening this book and looking at it and having absolutely no idea what was going on in it. Um, and I was just sort of confronted. I, I was like, well, you know, I've, I've, I've read Big Nothingness. Everything is easy. And so I looked at this book and I had no idea what was going on in it. And if, if I have a... Uh, if I have one sole inter intellectual virtue, um, uh, it's very small, but it's this, it's that uh, things that I don't understand intrigue me. And, I, and at that very moment, I decided that I had to understand what this book was about. Uh, just, the, just the sheer impenetrability and the, uh, of, of these words on this page, which also involved uh, sort of logic and mathematics, which, I was, which were way beyond my caliber to, in education to understand. Um, uh, and I really, I had to know, I had to know who this person was, what this meant. Um, at the time I had already wanted to be uh, a novelist. Actually, that was my career. And, and the takeaway I immediately had, uh, from reading the Tractatus was, was absolutely devastating in that, um, in that the takeaway that I had from the book, from my sort of amateur, immature reading was that uh, language didn't mean anything. Um, this is false, obviously. Um, but, uh, this is the sort of, I remember the first impression. This caused me to be very, very depressed. And so in order, I felt, um, and which is another useful error 
to be a novelist, I had to understand how language works. Uh, this is false uh, or not entirely true. But I felt that very strongly that I had to understand how language worked, how meaning worked. And that led me to a, uh, a degree in philosophy in which I wrote my bachelor's thesis on, on Wittgenstein and a, a master's thesis, a master's degree in philosophy, um, in which Wittgenstein played a very, very central role in what I wrote about. Um, at which time, uh, I had come full circle on Wittgenstein, namely that I had become much more interested in his second book, uh, The Philosophical Investigations. And I had taken, actually, I had come to be convinced that, in fact, uh, uh, Wittgenstein had indeed uh, proved that there were no such thing as philosophical problems and that philosophy was at an end and that what I ought to do, in fact, was to go all the way back to my original impulse and to work uh, to work in fiction instead, and so this is a sort of uh, capsule of my sort of very foolish, very young, very romantic uh, idea about what philosophy was supposed to do, in particular what what Wittgenstein was supposed to do, uh, and that was this sort of digression, as it were, uh, into an entirely different uh, mode and realm of thinking uh, that has had sort of interesting. Um, consequences for my later career as, as a writer of criticism and fiction and poetry. Um, but ultimately, I abandoned uh, any, um, by the time my master's degree was finished, I abandoned any interest in, in the further pursuit of philosophy as a sort of academic discipline or career. Hmm. And Child's Play is kind of happening in between those two important Wittgenstein's books uh, when he kind of uh, um, abandoning his. Uh, let's say, first uh, picture of the language and will be slowly steering uh, towards his other later very different discoveries. Um, yeah, absolutely. So let me do a, a, yeah. a quick, a sort of quick recap of, uh, of Wittgenstein's career. Uh, it's for, for your listeners, in case uh, the listeners are sort of not familiar with the over arc, overall arc of uh, Wittgenstein's biography. So uh, Wittgenstein is um, born to an extremely wealthy family. He's one of the richest, one of the richest families uh, in Europe at the time, uh, in Vienna, uh, in the uh, late nineteenth uh, century. He uh, then goes on to um, study, and, and this, this family is uh, so. The haute bourgeoisie of, of Viennese society. His father was a wealthy industrialist. They had Brahms over to do to perform um, uh, string quartets. Uh, one of his sisters was uh, a portrait of her was painted by Klimt. Um, three of his elder brothers committed suicide. One of whom uh, was a, f a famous piano player, Paul Wittgenstein. Uh, was a famous uh, piano player. Who, um, who had lost an arm and Ravel composed, uh, the, um, a piano piece, uh, for him. So this is the kind of sort of very high cultural milieu. Of course, in Vienna at a very, very interesting time in Vienna's history at the sort of tail end and decadence and collapse of, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, he goes to study, uh, logic, uh, with Bertrand Russell in Cambridge. Uh, and he quickly becomes uh, Bertrand Russell's protege uh, and then his sort of um, uh, intellectual master. 
and he's he's expected he's going to sort of take over for for Russell um, as a logician and mathematician. Uh, and the things that they're working on are, um, uh, you know, uh, issues issues related to uh, essentially how does language work, how does denotation work, um, what is uh, what is mathematics essentially um, is mathematics a set of uh, coherent meaningful propositions can uh, we derive mathematics from logic and so on and so forth. So the very sort of heady topics. Um, what happens is um, World War One breaks out. Wittgenstein goes to serve in the uh, Austrian army. Um, he gets himself or, or asks requests to be posted to um, to the most sort of dangerous position on the Eastern Front. And as he's in the in uh, fighting, as he's seeing combat on the on the Eastern Front, uh, he's working on uh, his book, the Tractatus Logical Philosophicus, uh, which is in in it. His goal is to end the uh, twenty five hundred year uh, history of philosophy by solving all the philosophical problems. That was his ambition. Uh, and he produces at the end of his time during the war, in fact, in the POW camp, he produces an 80 page, uh, let's call it a proof, um, which uh, he claims um, has answered all the questions or provides the framework for answering all the questions of philosophy. And then he quits because he thinks that he has solved all the problems. There's no more work for him to do. And he decides that he's going to work. Uh, he gives away all of his money. He gives away the entirety of his inheritance. Uh, so he becomes very poor. Um, but of course, you know, he's a, now he's a, a poor aristocrat. And he decides that he's going to go teach uh, children in Austrian village schools. Um, in the trenches, he's been reading Tolstoy. He decides that he's going to embrace a life of poverty and sort of spiritual self-debasement. And he's going to do this by teaching uh, mathematics, uh, but also, you know, uh, language engineering uh, in, in elementary schools in a, in a series of small towns in uh, lower Austria. Um, and there, um, the, the, the children are, let's say, between ages of sort of, uh, they're sort of preteens, as it were, between eight and 12. Um, and they're the children of farmers and small shopkeepers in these small village, villages. And there he writes a book, which is the only the second book that he uh, publishes in his lifetime, uh, called the, as I said, said earlier, the word book for elementary schools. And it's Wittgenstein's attempt to provide a spelling dictionary to teach these children how to spell. Um, and to, to make a long story short, um, at the end of his time as a school teacher, which does not go well, he's a, he's a very bad teacher. Um, <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's, um, he's abusive. He's, uh, ill-tempered. He, uh, he's, he's an absolute genius and he is, uh, uh, really impatient and uncaring, uh, for his, for the vast majority of his students, most of whom record being absolutely terrified of him and, one can entirely see why that's the case. Um, 
he is forced to quit. Um, he, uh, he struck one of his students so hard that they required medical attention. He was forced to quit teaching. Uh, and at the time he was in Lower Austria, uh, in Vienna, his, his book, The Tractatus, has become a, a, a huge sensation. And everyone is recognizing um, both in Cambridge uh, and in Vienna with a school called the Vienna Circle, a group of people called the Logical Positivists have hailed this book as now the sort of watershed uh, book of philosophy. But um, he's always illusioned when it, uh, with it, correct? So exactly. And the irony is, is he, leaves, he, leaves, uh, he leaves teaching in these villages. Uh, he leaves uh, behind this strange uh, word book that he's composed for, for teaching in rural schools. And he comes back to Vienna and he's being hailed as the sort of the great new philosopher, and he comes back and he basically tells everyone that everything in the book that he had written was wrong, right? That he had not, in fact, solved all of uh, uh, philosophy's problems because there were no such things as philosophical problems, only confusions of, only philosophical confusions of ordinary language. And he was going to then go back and write, spend the rest of his career debunking, in other words, the assumptions that went into his first book. Uh, and that debunking uh, appears posthumously in a book called The Philosophical Investigations, uh, which is quite amazingly uh, also regarded as one of the most important books of the 20th, uh, philosophy in the 20th century. So here's a person who, who basically wrote two philosophical masterpieces, the goal of which was to shut down philosophy um, and so when people talk about Wittgenstein, they talk about uh, his early period and his late period. And in between those moments, he, he's working on, a, there's a series of notebooks that are published, of course. But the one book he publishes is this very small, strange list of words. Um, and the purpose of this list of words is to teach eight to 12 year olds how to spell. Right, but you also uh, claim that, uh, in fact, uh, during his teaching time, he actually learns tons himself, and he builds the bridge to, let's say, the second part of his um, work. Um, and exactly. uh, uh, right, okay, continue, please. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so the the strange the strange book is is uh, is sort of generally regarded as a sort of piece of unimportant uh, ephemera. Uh, but actually, what's, what's so fascinating about it is uh, in it, if you look at it sort of hard enough, as it were, uh, as an object, uh, you, you start to see the, the, the transition, the sort of ideas that are going to be coming uh, that, that, that um, cause Wittgenstein to reject his earlier work in the Tractatus and to embrace a sort of new philosophy in the ultimately in the investigation. And in the piece, I sort of discuss what those ideas are, what the early theory of the Tractatus was, basically it's a picture theory of language. And the later theory of, of Wittgenstein is basically, and of course, the philosophers listening, there, there are nits to pick with this particular characterization, but it's a use theory. And the idea is when Wittgenstein's in this village, he comes to understand that the, what language is fundamentally is a series of games or uh, what he calls language, very famously language games that are informed and connected together 
by a background of, of cultural practices. Um, and his involvement with, with, um, with the school children in Austria really alerted him to issues about how language is actually learned, how it's actually used in practical situations, what the influence of a particular, what he calls form of life, in this case, village life, um, impacts the way that language is used. Um, and uh, all of these cause him to, to see his early work as overly formalistic, uh, as overly, not, not as wrong per se, but so narrowly subscribed to be irrelevant to an actual picture of how uh, we use language in, in the vast majority of circumstances, namely in our everyday life, when it comes with a number of features, not just um, uh, making true or false statements about the world, but asking for things, expressing desires, um, commanding people to do things, all of the various sort of features and things we do with language, which is, of course, very influential uh, and is picked up uh, by, by Oxford, ordinary language philosophy, and the notion of uh, performativity, which informs so much of our uh, current understanding about how uh, language is used in a sort of anthropological or, or ethnological sense in ordinary life. Yeah, uh, and let's add to that that uh, you refer to your own experience as well as a uh, as a father. Can you talk a bit about that? Um, sure. Like there are two. So in the in the piece. Um, what was sort of interesting, just from a technical point of view, is sort of the challenge of this piece uh, is to take this this list of words. Um, the the list of words, I should say, uh, was published and translated to English um, by or for rather uh, an artist called Paul Chan, um, who turned it into a sort of artist book. And so there are illustrations in the book. There's a sort of there's a preface. Um, by Desiree Webster, there's a translator's preface. And so the, the, the sort of standard way to approach this book is actually as a sort of art book, uh, which is what it was published. That's why it was translated to English and, and published uh, last year in 2020 uh, by Paul Chan for his own sort of, uh, for his own press called Badlands Unlimited. Um, but I wanted to look at it at sort of philosophically, what was the importance of, of this words? And, and as I was, I was looking through it, when I, I finally received a, a copy of this thing, the challenge then presented itself. It's like, well, how do you, how do you write something interesting about what, the, what is ultimately just a series of words on a, on a, on a piece of, of paper? And the, the traditional way to do that is the, to, to talk about the art, um, uh, to do art criticism. But I wanted to, to talk about the philosophy and what can we derive of interest from this, uh, this series of words. Um, and when I was looking through the book itself, which uh, the words contain everything from discussions about farm implements, discussions about the sort of it's a, a very Catholic uh, villages that they were living in. So there's discussions uh, from sort of Catholic theology, uh, discussions of various products that would have been available to them, um, discussions of various like uh, emotions, uh, including alcoholism and anger and so on and so forth. And I, I'm looking through this, this series of words to try and figure out how to uh, sort of elicit something from them. And there I noticed, um, there I noticed that my, my son's name 
Uh, my son is called Anton, which is a, uh, a standard uh, a German name uh, or and would have been a standard Austrian name, apparently. Uh, there are many uh, children's names in the book, um, but I saw it and I, I, I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be funny to try to, and my son, I think, was uh, around the time I received the book, my son was around 18, 19, 20 months old. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to try to teach him to, to write his name uh, and to perform this experiment of using this book to teach him to actually sort of perform an experiment with the book itself? Like, can it be used in this way? Um, but of course, the book was written for, you know, eight-year-olds. My son was, you know, 20, 20 or so months. Uh, and it proved to be an interesting ref occasion, a sort of interesting reflection about my own relationship to uh, learning, to um, teaching, uh, to having to having a child, um, and uh, all of that sort of is narrated in the piece. And at this point in time, I, I had already knew that I was going to be writing about this book. But what was so interesting about the piece was because of this sort of year-long time scale in which it was written, uh, I incorporated elements. Uh, of daily life, uh, including the pandemic, including um, teaching my attempting to teach my son how to write his name, including all the very strange sort of feelings um, uh, that it brought up in me about my own relationship to um, education and intelligence, and what I should or should not be passing on to my son, uh, and that all got folded in to. Uh, to the piece as the piece was sort of already under uh, assignment. I should just say, I suppose, for the record, that uh, another thing that was mu explored much, uh, uh, was occasioned by this and explored much greater length uh, in, in, in the earlier drafts was this sort of me working through sort of my ambivalence about, um, about being, being a father in the first place. Um, and what that meant, what that previously existing ambivalence meant, um, and about the sort of conception of myself as a person that I had when I was much younger. Um, if people ask me, oh, you know, are you going to be a parent someday? And I was like, absolutely not. No, no, no way. Um, but what had in fact uh, happened was that uh, life proved to be different. And so it was it's, it, it occasioned sort of a series of reflections on the sort of ambivalence I had about wanting to be a father in the first place and what that means for me and for my relationship with my son now that I am one. Um, hmm. Do you think that this experience of being a father will be as important as, uh, you know, being a father for all these school uh, children in Austria to Wittgenstein and, you know, something that put his patients on a test that this is an uh, um, important bridge perhaps for you uh, in uh, whatever you will be creating yeah. later on? Yeah. I, I think so. I think along with this being the, ironic, the first time I've written about uh, Wittgenstein, it's also the first time I've written about uh, uh, being a parent. And as I sort of say in the piece, when I was when I sort of first discovered, you know, uh, that I was going to be a parent, I, I the, the writers that I was reading, um, Helen DeWitt, uh, Jenny Offels, um, Sheila Hetty, 
uh, Maggie Nelson, were all writing about the sort of uh, way in which the relationship between being a writer and being a parent, um, uh, in which those two things represent sort of interestingly competing or conflicting responsibilities. And I think that, of course, that there's, there's, and each of those different writers talks about that in, in, uh, in, in their, in their fiction, uh, in very different ways. But of course, what all those writers have in common, of course, is they're all, um, North American or, uh, or at the time, uh, Helen, Helen DeWitt was in, I guess, was writing in the UK at the time. Um, so there's a sort of different experience of that in, in the United States, Canada and, and the UK versus in Germany. But of course, the other thing is, of course, is there, all those writers are, uh, are women. And the sort of thing that I had, I, I, I turned to these writers because they were the only persons that I knew of that were, were talking about this. And of course, obviously it goes without saying that, uh, having a child as, as woman versus having a child as a, uh, man is a very, very different, uh, experience, uh, for all sorts of social, economic, uh, cultural reasons. Um, and it's also very different in each of these various different societies and it produces different anxieties. But these people were my, my role model, the people I turned to in order to sort of understand myself, uh, as, as a father, because they were the only people that I, I found that were actually writing about this sort of ambivalence. Uh, and what in my case, and I say, I should sort of paraphrase this by saying that um, I think the almost the least interesting thing that people when talking about parenting can do is is generalize from from their particular experience. Um, but rather, but in my case, the experience that I had um, was um, was that what it, what happens, what happens is when you become a parent, in my experience, is that the question of whether or not you want to be a parent ceases to become relevant because you've become, you simply become a different person. And the questions the, and the worries and anxieties that at least I had um, existed, but then they existed sort of intellectually as opposed to existentially. And there's a, something very Wittgensteinian about this, this idea, right, which is that uh, Wittgenstein in the Tractatus very famously talks about how you have to climb, how his book is like a ladder. And then once you climb up it, you have to discard it and throw, throw it away. Uh, and that, uh, and then, then this is the sort of penultimate point he makes. And then he concludes by saying, you know, whereof one cannot speak, one must be silent. And what I find so often is when there, when there's discussions around parenting, you're, you're, we're having discussions between two very different experiences, which are sort of both mutually begging the question against one another. Um, and so what I think is really interesting is that this ambivalence um, that I certainly experienced, it's not that the ambivalence was solved in one direction or another. What happened was is that it, the problem ceased to exist, right? The, the problem had disappeared as a result of, of moving or changing status or state and becoming a parent, which is a very sort of Wittgensteinian um, move uh, that I experienced sort of intellectually uh, and experientially through this this experience of of having, like, of having a child, yeah. Yeah, kind of like uh, dying in order to stop being afraid of uh, dying. That's exactly correct. Like, actually, <laughs> I distinctly recall, like, the experience that I had was, 
when I, when I found out that I, I was going to be a parent, I was like, oh, I'm dead. I've just died. Uh, and that's in, and that sounds very strange, right? Out of context, but exactly. But that's a sort of the same ritual or the same experience that you have. You are you die in the sense that your old self uh, disappears, and uh, for better or for worse, now you're a new self, uh, and you are. And, and you know, this is sort of every important sort of life cycle ritual that we have, whether it's you know, it's sort of. If you're young and you go through a, a sort of religious rit ritual of translation, transition to adulthood, or if you get married, uh, which I'm not, for example, but if you get married, that's a change of state and the old self sort of dies and you're reborn as this new self. And, and however, you have the memory of what it was like to be your previous self and you have to rebuild your new self on the basis of the sort of memory of this person you no longer are. Um, and it's that each of these sort of groups of people, the before you and the after you, it's really hard to say which one is better or worse because you'd simply be begging the question against each, each other. And in the new state, the question of better and worse no longer arises. Uh, and what occurs ultimately in the, in the story in the piece is after a long process of, of attempting to teach Anton to write the first letter of his name, the A, uh, I, say, I, 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 I utterly failed to do it. And I realized that that process of the, 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 my motivations in trying to, to teach him this, uh, were not good. We're not sort of sound, good parenting motivations. They came from a bad place in me and my old self and that I should just let it go. And, uh, and it was an error and a mistake on my part to want to do this in the first place. Um, and then so only several months later, uh, did I notice, I, 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 I walked by him and he was writing uh, on the floor and he had written the letter A on the floor. Um, and I had realized that it was only after my giving up my desire to do this that I could truly experience this sort of profound joy and pleasure of watching him just do it himself uh, and to be this autonomous human being who was very pleased to have this new uh, experience. And I, I really felt like, um, watching him draw that A, uh, has given me sort of more profound sense of, 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 of meaning and satisfaction than in anything that I've ever written, including this piece, um, in which I recorded a discussion of it. Uh, and for me, that was an important moment in thinking about me as a writer, because from youth, from, from, my very early age and you know when i was 16 i'm first encountering Wittgenstein. uh that's always what i have wanted to be and i come to realize that that this identity that i wanted to have in some ways i already had it but in other ways uh for me personally and i'm not speaking about anyone else but but for me personally it had become um uh it, it was it was no longer a source of of the primary mode of meaning uh, in my life. And what was much more important to me was this other mode of meaning. Yes, because you also, uh, another interesting thing, language aside in the piece is that you talk about uh, not only uh, being genius, but also also about overestimating of being smart. And that, uh, you know, for example, democracy isn't only for smart people, right? And society does not consist or it shouldn't deliver only to smart people. Can you talk a bit more about that? That was really wonderful. Yeah, I just, uh, just speaking personally, the, the sort of 
what I say in the piece is that the, the, there are many of sort of, again, sort of ex, what we'll call sort of existential aspects of life um, uh, in which being in the world uh, confronts us with. Uh, and one of those things is our relationship to time, our relationship to money, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to, um, you know, to, to love and friendship. Um, and each of these things, right, our, our relationship to religion, um, each of these things is something that we all confront in our, in our lives in various different ways, coming from the various different positions and backgrounds and experiences that we have. Uh, and each of them, you can have a sort of uh, healthy or unhealthy uh, relationship with them. Um, and in the piece, what I say is, uh, for me, what differentiates those two things is, is you have to have a sort of, this is a very classically sort of philosophical thing, so you have to have a moderate relationship uh, with each of them. And one of the, the ways you can demonstrate you have a moderate relationship with them is that you become indifferent to them, right? Uh, it, it's a nice thing to have, but it doesn't overwhelm you. Um, you don't uh, fear it too much, but nor are you over-invested in it. And it just becomes a sort of, sort of uh, pre-theoretical concern of your life. And in each of those different sort of aspects that I, that I discussed, um, yeah. Uh, that requires what um, that requires philosophical work. I would on like yourself. to ask you. I'm sorry. Uh, go on. Yes. Uh, okay. I I have you back. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Um, uh, can I ask you about uh, what do you read these days? Uh, your favorite writers of fiction and nonfiction, even poetry. In general, uh, or simply? <laughs> uh, yes, um, I, all of all of the, all of the, all of the above. Um, it's been a sort of long uh, degree. Uh, it's been a long. Uh, the the past two years, I've been reading because I've been writing so much criticism. I've been reading um, exclusively for work, which is a very sort of new thing and it's something I, I don't entirely like. And I, I've been trying to read. Um, things that are, are not related to work, but I, I just don't uh, uh, always have the time for that. I, I just finished a book uh, by uh, Frederick Jameson's new book on, on Walter Benjamin. Uh, that was just for fun. Um, uh, right now I'm, I'm reading uh, Rosemary Waldrop for a new piece. I just finished uh, Rivka Galshin's new novel, uh, uh, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which I reviewed um and yeah let's see what what's here on the stack um oh i read the a book a book by uh william logan on who's a called dickinson's nerves frost woods and it's um a book of uh critic uh poetry criticism um there's a book by Mark O'Shea about the Metro, which was a lot of fun. Uh, he's a sociologist and he's writing about the uh, about the Paris Metro, which is sort of uh, an interesting uh, little short sociological examination of that space. I love I love subways um, and ubans and all forms of public transportation. So that was uh, an enjoyable read. But yeah, like uh, all genres, um, I think this is my habit as a fiction writer. If, if you're a writer of fiction, 
uh, everything goes in, um, whether it's philosophy, science, uh, literature, history, um, anything you can get your hands on is, is useful material to have for, uh, for your work. And one of the great perks of being a novelist or, or even writing uh, this kind of long form criticism is that you really get to uh, throw everything in and uh, learn a lot learn and experience sort of new and different things that you would not have otherwise experienced and extend well beyond sort of a narrow sort of specialization. Um, and yeah, and get as much input from the, from the world because the world is a sort of wonderful place. Uh, and if you're a curious person, then uh, all you want to be is in a position to receive as much of it as possible. Yeah. We should also probably mention your uh, novel again, Zero Plus One, which I just finished this morning, A Gothic Twist on the Classic Tale of Innocent, Innocent Abroad. Uh, also something that is, uh, uh, you know, um, a love letter to philosophy. Uh, <laughs> um, and more, of a, more of a cautionary tale, I would describe, uh, yeah. uh, of, of what happens when you take uh, philosophy too seriously, which I love, by the way. I, like, I think that you should, everyone should have the experience of, uh, of taking philosophy too seriously because it's, uh, it's a nice, like uh, the, the, the life of the mind is also risky and can be risky and dangerous. And everyone, I think, should have the experience of sort of flirting with the danger of, um, of, of, of ideas themselves. But only, of course, if you uh, ultimately, you know, again, it's a cautionary tale. So you, you have to come out on the other side um, and be able to put these sort of ideas in their appropriate uh, context. Um, and uh, but, but, Yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, no, just saying that context both uh, historically. So, for example, like like I said earlier, like I was an early misreader of Wittgenstein and it took me approximately, uh, you know, 10 years to not be that anymore. And then, of course, there's this existential element of thought where you're experimenting with this in your in your in your daily life. And so it's important to be able to place that in the context of of yourself as well uh, to move from mere thought to to some to try to get towards yeah. wisdom which is of course the ancient philosophical ideal uh is uh, zach and owen uh are david genstein and and bertrand russell at some to some degree or you uh, don't think that uh, <laughs> uh, that's funny no no who, who they are is me um yeah. caught up Cut up into two people. So what, um, no one's no one's ever asked me about the novel, so it's amusing to me. But um, what I did with those two is to cut them up, to cut my as it were, cut up myself into sort of a duality, and then just really emphasize uh, and push each of the sort of dualities into their into their sort of extremes. Um, but I think that uh, in both senses. What Zach and Owen would have in common with someone like, like, like figure. Russell is a sort of interesting figure. He's a sort of he's a he's a person of insouciance. He's a man of the world. He's a he's a, he's he's, a, he's the kind of person you would actually want to spend time with. Whereas Wittgenstein is sort of a nightmare, uh, who's so preoccupied and takes everything so seriously. So in this respect, both Zach and Owen are, are much more in, in in Team Wittgenstein. They they take everything uh, at the highest possible pitch of intensity and seriousness. Um, and that's a certain, there's a certain likable, a romantic sort of likableness to this, uh, 
even if at the end of the day, that's an ultimately, in my view, an ultimately sort of corrosive way to be. Yeah. Okay, then maybe let's finish about uh, with talking about the new piece that will be published very soon, uh, The Aesthetics of uh, Resistance, uh, Peter Weiss and the Political Novel. Uh, very interesting uh, essay. Uh, pretty much, uh, 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 how to say it? Uh, some pondering about how we all got obsessed with Trump some years after it happened. So... Uh, could you tell us a bit uh, what to expect and which publication uh, will it be published uh, with? Certainly. So this is a, a piece uh, about Peter Weiss. And for listeners who don't know Peter Weiss, he's uh, one of the most sort of important German language novelists of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote a three-volume, 1,000-page-long novel called The Aesthetics of Resistance, um and he uh and this is sort of his it's a it's a wonderful book it's uh it's an epic novel set amongst the sort of anti-fascist uh resistance uh first in berlin uh but then the novel expands all throughout europe during the period uh between say 1938 and 1945 46 uh for all three novels um and that was the book that I happened to be reading on November 6, 2016. Um, and what the piece is, is ultimately a story of reading this book at the beginning and at the what turned out to be the end of the Trump administration and all the various issues that are occasioned by, you know, the relationship to how we read the world. Um, through what we read the world, um, it just it brings up a couple of by now rather <laughs> um, uh, well discussed debates about the about the question of historical analogies to the Nazi period and fascism, uh, the relationship between um, politics and uh, aesthetics, specifically in uh, the contemporary uh, American novel. So it covers all those particular topics, uh, but and it's you know it's huge. It's uh, it's eight thousand it's eight thousand words. But what it really is is, is um, it's a story of uh, it's a story about confusion. I think actually, um, and I uh, remain to this day here in July first, twenty twenty one, deeply confused about what happened through the. The period starting on November in November 2016 to the present, uh, and what it is is trying to make sense of, of that confusion, trying to work through the sort of strange relationship we currently have to the to the past, as though it is finished and done with, um, but strangely not vestigially. It sort of lives in our in our consciousness. Uh, we it feels as though we haven't swallowed it, or we swallowed it, but we haven't metabolized it quite fully or understood its meaning or implications. And so this is a sort of uh, attempt to provide a sort of first draft of history, as it were, uh, along, uh, obviously, many uh, other people have written about this, and to discuss the role that history plays in understanding our present and why just exactly it was that it seemed important that we talk about the history of 
of European fascism at this particular moment, whether or not, and of course, this is a, a very strenuous, you know, contentious debate, but whether or not that that was true or false, or to what extent it was true or false, seems to me less relevant than, than that it was the conversation we had. And my interest is, is what does this conversation uh, and all of our confusions around this particular issue and this particular historical analogy, what does this say about us um, as, uh, in this particular case, as an American, as Americans in general, and for me in particular as an American living in Berlin, in uh, in the heart of in the capital of the Third Reich, uh, in the for obviously the former Third Reich, um, but also reading the, a novelist by by Peter Weiss, who was born here in Berlin, and this book is largely set or in, in Berlin. And what, it, what was it like to look at the United States in that period from that set of perspectives? Um, so what does German people uh, think about this whole um, attempt of uh, American attempt to, you know, uh, you know, uh, paint uh, Trump and uh, Nazis with the same brushes. What do they think about overusing of this metaphor these days or in recent days? <laughs> well, it's, the, the the strange thing is, is of course, is and one of the the strange. So, as as you as you know, the Vergangenheitskultur um, and memory culture is, is is very important to uh, the German understanding of self. Um, and I, I recall very definitively that during the 2016 campaign, this was something that was very much uh, on the minds of Germans. The comparisons were um, were fast and, and and furious. People talked about it all the time. Um, and it it being being in Germany, it, it was it was something that it was something that occasioned or at least in a very common sense sort of way, it was that it occasioned no debate, which is to say that the, the point of memory culture uh, in Germany was to prepare you to precisely, whether or not the, the analogy is perfect or not, to prepare you to see the kinds of things uh, as, as similar. Uh, and that's true both for what was happening in the United States, but was also happening uh, in France, uh, in Hungary uh, and also in in Germany itself, um, and uh, when the the like it, it is, I think within the the political class itself, there it is less directly spoken of. But when when people talk about the alternative for Deutschland in in the in, in Germany in a sort of regular way, unless you're unless you or yourself are a sympathizer, what they're talking about is either proto or crypto fascist. And and they and it's said in a very unambiguous uh, uh, sort of way. So there's no real question about it. And the the similarities between the two parties, between the Alternative for Deutschland and, and the Trumpist Republican Party, are are, are very are very quite similar. So um, throughout the Trump administration, this the the, the the debate didn't exist to the greatest extent because uh, one of the premises was more largely. Accepted, and I'm sure if you were to go and look through the entirety of the literature on the matter, you would find obviously German writers saying, "Well, you know, maybe this isn't uh, as close as uh, you know th this analogy is sort of infelicitous." I'm sure that happened, uh, but it wasn't consuming to the extent 
than it was in the United States uh, or um, uh, among people discussing these issues, uh, simply because the, there was less of a, there was quite literally to perceived to be less of a debate. And post 2021, of course, this very strange thing that's, that's happened everywhere is that uh, Germany, and I'd say the most of the European Union is, is broadly relieved um, for better or for worse to be dealing with what they recognize as quote unquote normal uh, American politicians. And there are some good things about that in the sense that uh, Trump does not dominate uh, and American politics more generally does not dominate discourse here as it, as it did in that period. And we can actually start talking about uh, German politics. There's an election coming up here in September that's going to be very important. And um, uh, and that's obviously something that needs to be discussed at a, at a, at a, just at a, at a, at a German level. Uh, but but the other thing, of course, is that uh, it seems to me that that uh, the Euro Europeans are quite relieved uh, about uh, by Biden's election to the extent that they've you know pretending they would like to pretend that that Trump was an aberration, that it didn't happen, that it won't happen again. And that they can go back to dealing with this sort of, you know, uh, relationship, whether it's NATO, whether it's trade policy, uh, whether it's any of these things, they, they're like, I guess, well, you know, the old, the old American hegemon is back. We don't have to worry anymore. And in some respects, I think speaking here personally, that's, there's a degree of complacency about the relationship between the EU and, uh, the United States, um, that has not been sufficiently addressed as both the United States and the EU have decided to simply move on about the matter, um, which I think will rear its ugly head again in the, in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what, my, yeah. what can we expect this piece to be published? Oh, um, so I should say that, that uh, yeah, we have not decided on a final final title yet, but uh, it's uh, in, it's I've just sent back the proof changes, and it should be either coming out uh, sometime in the middle or the end of the month. Uh, in the point, um, sounds great. Um, thank you so so much. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, okay, this is a, a real pleasure. I really appreciate you uh, being in touch and uh, talking to me about the work. Thank you so much. You were listening to Cover Story by New Books Network, and we were talking with Ryan Ruby about his piece, Child's Play, published this June in The Believer. Thank you. <laughs>